1: Kathy Ace jokes that she followed the advice given to so many beginner writers to write what you know, and the result was her university lecturer sleuth Kate Morgan, a short, plus sized Welsh Canadian who's a bit bossy. Rather like Kathy herself. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Kathy talks about the personal loss that propelled her into writing fiction, why she loves puzzle mysteries and the one thing she would change if she were starting over. But before we talk to Cathy, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Cathy's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now... Here's Cathy. Hello there, Cathy, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me along, Jenny. It's a delight to be here. And I
1: always am amazed by the miracles of technology, but today you're sitting a little south of Vancouver and I'm in Auckland, So, and we're talking as if we're just right sitting next to each other. So that's wonderful.
2: It's wonderful. It is wonderful, isn't it? It is, yeah.
1: Now, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you realized that you had to write fiction or somehow your life would be poorer for not doing so? And if so, was there a catalyst that made you realize
2: this? You know, that's a really interesting question, Jenny. And and there was a point and there was a catalyst. Unfortunately, it was the death of my father that was the catalyst, because I think, like so many people, the death of a parent suddenly makes us realize we're mortal. And if we're going to do something about something that we feel passionate about, we'd probably better get off our backsides and do it. Yes. So (laughs) having uh, written one short story um, back in the 1980s and having had that published and then having had that recorded for BBC Radio 4 and my parents and my family almost exploding with pride when it was broadcast. The death of my father shortly thereafter did spur me on to say to myself, if you're going to write crime fiction, get on with it. So I did. Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable success
1: with that very first short story too, that it got such prominence. That must have been quite encouraging for starters.
2: It it was. I mean, to, to enter a competition with a short story, to have it published was fantastic to have it then appear on the GCSE English language um, papers for all British school students, which is what British school students do at 16 years old, yeah. was just unbelievable. Yeah, um, that, that was back in the 80s and the 90s, and it wasn't actually until 2007 that it was picked up and broadcast on BBC Radio 4. But despite that large gap during which I ran a business, that fictional thread was quite the magical thread, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've
1: now got two successful mystery series running. The first, the Kate Morgan series, you've got an academic with a photographic memory and a vulnerable past. And in the other series, the Wise Inquiry series, you've got four women solving crimes from the base of a Welsh stately home. So Kate is an amateur. The wise women are professionals. There's quite a dichotomy in in how they're set up and how you approach them. Can you talk a little bit about those two different series and how they originated?
2: What I wanted to do with these two different sets of characters was to go on the basis of what I know and what I think most avid readers of crime fiction know, Agatha Christie. She's my favourite author. And she has miss Marple, the cozy sleuth and hercule poirot the intensely intelligent private investigator and i sort of reversed those roles in that my private investigators are much more cozy albeit professional and my amateur sleuth is much more brilliant Um, she's an academic because at the time that i wrote that first kate morgan mystery i myself was teaching at a university and um being a welsh canadian and her being a welsh canadian And the surroundings in which she worked were all very close to me. But I did realize that while I love the shape of a sleuthing book, where it's a small closed circle of suspects, everybody could have done it, nobody could have done it, everybody wanted to do it, nobody wanted to do it, and then you have the final denouement, all of which I love, I also enjoy the different shape of a private investigator novel, where you follow clues and sometimes sort out mini cases on the way to cracking the big case. And that's the difference between the shape of the two books. Kate is a typical traditional sleuthing story, and the private investigators do deal with several little cases along the way to the final denouement of the book.
1: Sure. Now just remind me what WISE stands for. I did see it, and then when I went back to look for it, I couldn't find it again, and I hadn't written it down. W-I-S-E
2: stands for... Welsh, Irish, Scottish, English. Ugh. One of the four private investigators each is one is Welsh, one is Irish, one is Scottish, one is English. And being Welsh and a rugby fan, when there were just the four whole nations playing rugby, it was WISE. Then, of course, France and Italy joined in. And probably best we don't talk more about rugby than that, eh? <laughs> Okay.
1: Now, before you got to a mystery series running, I think I'm right in saying that you...
2: Did you start with Murder by Man? Yeah. The first thing that I did was... Um, that first short story that was broadcast on BBC Radio 4 began January the 1st. Today is the first day of the year I killed George. Uh-huh. And it's a diary of a woman planning to kill her husband. So when I realized that I would like to write more crime fiction... I thought, well, hang on a minute. I've got a story here that's quite obviously a January story. What I could do is to take each month of the calendar and work out how a story might revolve somehow around each different month of the calendar, be that an occasion which happens during the month or the nature of the weather at the time of the month or something like that. So that's what I did. I wrote 12 short and some, well, some are short and some are not so short stories And I self-published that as Murder Month by Month. And I so enjoyed doing that. And I was so pleased that my mum had more to read of my work than my dad had ever done that I then pushed myself on to write four novellas, which I'm sure will come as no surprise, were published under the title Murder Season by Season, again, with each novella revolving somehow around one season of the year. And that allowed me to create recurring characters within the collection of short stories who I then pulled out and gave a novella reach. So Kate Morgan was in the first collection of short stories and in the collection of novella. The wise women met in the first collection of short stories and developed their business relationship in the collection of novella. And there's another recurring character, Detective Inspector Evan Glover, who works for the uh, Glamorgan Police Service in South Wales, and he's in both volumes as well, as well as standalone short stories with no recurrence whatsoever.
1: Well, that's fantastic because you really set up a, a training scheme for yourself, didn't you? I mean, it's it's almost like practising over and over how to begin, plot and end a story.
2: It, 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 it is true. That is really what I had in mind. I mean, I was coming to this from a point of having had a, a long career doing other things. And I think when you when you've done something for five or ten years, you do realise that an apprenticeship is a critical part of coming to a point where you can do anything proficiently. And I thought that working on short stories, then pushing myself to novella, would be a good way to work up those writing skills if they existed.
1: Well, you certainly approach it in a very scientific way, and, and I think it's really paid off. So you, you self-published those earlier ones, but... With the later books, you found traditional publishers. That obviously was quite deliberate. Um, You didn't sort of fancy the idea of self-publishing the whole lot? Do you know, the
2: the original purpose was to find myself an agent and then a publisher. I think, as with most starting out writers, you think, well, I'll write something and I'll approach an agent and I'll be off and I'll have a million-dollar bestseller immediately. Unfortunately, being in Canada, what I quickly discovered was that being a Welsh woman in Canada, writing stories set all around the world, didn't make me appeal very much to any market. And in Canada, we do have a dearth of agents, and I, I'm sure that in your area it's much the same. Mm-hmm. We also have a dearth of publishers. So targeting a publisher was almost easier than targeting an agent. Mm-hmm. And what I did was i I took a copy of each of those self-published books, wrapped it up in wrapped them up in red ribbon. And I crafted a a ransom note. I cut letters out of newspapers. I made a ransom note and I sent the books to a publisher on Vancouver Island with the ransom note, begging them to release the characters. And they came back to me and invited me to submit a novel-length manuscript about the Kate Morgan character, them being a Canadian publisher and her being a Canadian-based character, that was the character that they went for. So I was very fortunate that the first publisher I sent the books to bit and I sent them my manuscript and, and lo and behold, that was the first Cape Morgan mystery, The Corpse with the Silver Tongue. Fantastic. But being clever
1: like that and making yourself memorable, obviously
2: you comes from your marketing background, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it does a bit, yes. I mean, one of the things I learned was if you want to stand out, you have to stand out for a good reason, not a bad reason. I know know there's a saying, you know, all publicity is, is useful, but not all publicity is good. However, I do admit that I was breaking all of the rules by doing that. I didn't write a proper submission letter. I really didn't do anything that most regular bodies would suggest that you do. So I think I was very lucky, actually. Right place, right time. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Kate, you've said, stumbles over bodies as she travels around the world. And each story in the Kate Morgan series is set in a different city or country. I just wonder, is part of the fun for you doing the research for
2: those books? Now, by research, you mean, do I get on a plane and jet off to all these places to research yeah, them? Sometimes? Yeah, I do, actually, yeah. yes, yeah. Yes. I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately, the answer is no. <laughs> um, I can't run into that now. My my lifestyle has changed significantly, but they're all set in places where I've either lived or worked. So uh, up until I moved to Canada, I was a very per- peripatetic sort of person. I lived and worked in many places. So the south of France, which is where the first book is set, I used to have an apartment there where I would spend three or four months each year. And that, I think, is why the first book is set there, because maybe of all of the locations, it's the closest to my heart. And in writing the book, I was able to conjure all my sweet memories of being there. And that's been the thing with all of the books. Um, All of the places that are settings, which would be, BC wine country or the Pacific coast of Mexico or Amsterdam or Vegas um, are all places where I've spent a great deal of time and uh, I know them very well. Yeah. Now, Kate is a Welsh-Canadian like you,
1: and there are other similarities, as you've mentioned, even just location. You say you followed the advice to write what you know, and so your heroine is a short, plus-sized Welsh woman who's quite bossy, Um, we presume that 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 probably does describe you in part. How are you the same as Kate and how are you different?
2: Well, we are the same physically, yes. Although I will admit just between you and me that when I started writing these books, Kate was bouncing around at £180 and I just wish I was these days. But nevertheless, moving on... Kate, Kate's much more of a gourmand than a gourmet. She's got some terribly bad habits, and she's got this eidetic memory. Now, I will admit that I possess some of her bad habits. Unfortunately, I don't possess the eidetic memory. That would have come in very handy when I was at university, I will admit. But she is curious. She is bossy. She is a single woman in her 40s, and, and I myself didn't marry until I was 44, so certainly I, I do understand where she's coming from. And yes, like Kate, I do, in spite of the fashion police, have a propensity to sometimes wear horizontal stripes. So we have <laughs> that in common. Um, she she loves her food and drink. She knows she's overindulging. She knows what she's doing that's bad for her. She knows exactly how to stop because she's intelligent enough to do it. She just chooses not to. Um, and yes, she's... Uh, She's quite similar to me in many respects. Her history and some of her specific abilities are not mine. And I've also chosen to give her, to to not give her some of mine. So I think we're fair on that basis. Sure, sure. Now, you moved to Canada in
1: around about the year 2000, did you? After you'd had a very successful career in Europe. And I just wondered why did you move? What made you? Change countries at that
2: point. Well, I was imported like a parcel. The University of British Columbia were using uh, one of my texts, and um, when they were looking for a guest speaker on their MBA course, I was the person who got the job. So oh, fantastic! They they um, they invited me over to teach the marketing parts of their MBA course, and um, th- that's why I moved out to Vancouver. I'd sold my company in the UK in 1999, so I was footloose and fancy-free, just about to move to the south of France, and then this came up, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go. It's a chance to give back somewhat, and um, yes. and I'm still here now.
1: Fantastic. And and did you meet your own version of Bud before or after that?
2: Oh, no, that's a, a very long tale. My husband, I actually met him when I was 11 years old, He's also from Swansea, but no, we didn't get together until I came to Canada, which is where he'd emigrated in the 1970s. So it's a very long, circuitous, wonderful story. And, um, yeah, we finally ended up together. Isn't that cute? It is. I I just had this feeling there probably
1: was a man that was – part of the anchor in Canada I just wasn't quite sure if he came with you or whether he drew you there or quite what the story was well, but he, he, yes.
2: in- he was here already and I knew that if I came here and uh, there were at least people here I knew and um, yes. and that, that was a good background for me and certainly we, as I say we, we later married and um, yeah that's 18 years ago good heavens how time flies
1: Yeah, now you're settled on a rural property just just south of Vancouver where you've got big gardens and two chocolate Labradors. Is this your personal version of
2: heaven? Do you know it is? But I will admit that coming from Swansea in South Wales, I could never have imagined this would be my heaven because I couldn't have imagined that this was even a lifestyle that existed. As you say, large gardens... My mum, when she visits, calls them the grounds, which is so sweet because she thinks of it like it's a public park. And I look <laughs> out of the window and I still can't quite believe that these are all our trees that we have to look after. And five acres is a good whack of land to garden yes. and maintain. And however sure. much the Labradors want to help, they are not. They might be green poured, but they're not very good diggers, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's right.
1: Now, you categorise your work overall as light, traditional mysteries with no gore or sex. And that's very much like the classical mystery, in fact. What is it about mysteries that have fascinated you? I
2: think in very general terms, I am drawn to puzzles. I do like to find solutions to things. With you saying I took a very scientific approach to training myself to write, I am quite goal-oriented and I do have quite a linear thought process which for me means that following the clues with the sleuth and digging out the red herrings and finally working out with the detective who done what to whom where when and how has always fascinated me but largely I think I then have to go on and blame my mother I blame her for most things so I suppose she should get credit or blame She's a huge Agatha Christie fan, and I I did literally go from reading Nancy Drew mysteries to reading Agatha Christie mysteries, and I think there I immediately found my home, and my passion for puzzle plots was cemented at a very early age. So I I think with that background, I had very little choice, but if I was going to write fiction, it would be crime fiction, and that shape of crime fiction. Um I do see that there is crime fiction where there's a role for what people might call strong language or grit or realistic interpretations of adult life. I get all of that. Um, and I choose to read that. And in fact, I'm tending towards writing a little more of that. But you don't have to have strong language all the time, just when appropriate, you know, like nudity in film.
1: In more general terms, if we move away from talking about the specific books to looking a little bit more widely at your writing career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that's been the secret to your success?
2: You know, that's a really difficult question to answer because I'm not at all sure what success means in terms of a writing career. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are obvious things like you'd have a New York Times bestseller a movie made from your films, and so on. But that happens to so few authors in their careers or sometimes in their lifetime um, that I don't think you can use that as the, the desire for success that drives you. So I think when it comes to success in writing, how the author gauges success is going to be different for each author. I'm still enjoying my writing, but the shift that I mention in my writing is reflecting a shift in my own desire to do a different type of writing. And I've decided to follow my news and do that wherever it may lead, which to me will be successful because I'll enjoy the writing. The sales figures are good and solid for both of the series in the marketplace, which is great. And to win a Canadian National Writing Award for Best Light Mystery was something I never imagined would happen, and I was thrilled to bits when it did. I'm still not quite sure how that happened, but I'm pleased that it did. So in terms of that sort of success, the external acknowledgement of success, I'm, I'm not sure which differentiates one book from another to win a prize because it very much is in the eye of the judges, Hopefully, if you sell books, it means that you're pleasing a lot of people and they like to enjoy your stories, which is my ultimate goal, but also hard work. To be perfectly honest with you, to have written and published 12 novels within five years has been a lot of writing time, promotional time, editing time, and putting in the hours was my choice on the basis that if I was going to make a go of it, I was going to work the hardest that I could at it. I'm a bit of a 200% person, I suppose. And if I'm going to make an effort, it's going to be my best effort. Ultimately, therefore, a lot of hours, a lot of words written, and hopefully I'm getting a bit better at it the more I do. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So does that mean
1: you've written one of each series pretty well every year? And more,
2: I mean, a little bit more than one of each series. Uh, At the beginning, it was just one of you. The first one came out and, you know, you've got that bubbling away in your consciousness for however long it is and then it plops out. Then the next year, one more book came out of Kate Morgan. The following year, two Kate Morgans came out. The following year, two Kate Morgans and one Wise Woman came out. The following year two Kate Morgans and two Wise Women came out. So it was sort of catching up with itself. Writing three novels in a year was something I did for two consecutive years. I promised myself at the end of the first year I'd never do it again, but it was too late because I'd signed the contracts. So the second time I did it, I really promised myself I would never do that again. It was incredibly stressful. But it sounds like you got more productive,
1: obviously, as as you became more of a professional, you could
2: write faster as well? Is that what happened? I'm not sure that I was writing faster. What I found was I was putting in additional hours. Um, and, And really it was all based upon being terrified to say no to a contract in case people didn't ask again. You have two different publishers, I think, don't you, for each of the series? That's right. A Canadian publisher, Touchwood Editions for the Kate Morgan Mysteries, and a British publisher, Seven House Publishers, for the Wise Inquiries Agency Mysteries. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So turning to Cathy as a reader, because this uh, podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, um, and I think that it's based a little bit on the idea that with digital publishing, people have turned more and more to the idea of reading series. Have you in your past been a binge reader? And if so, Who are some of your favorite authors to binge read? Well, I will admit that in the early days,
2: I was definitely a binge Nancy Drew reader and a binge Ellery Queen reader and then a binge Agatha Christie reader. I think it's all probably Enid Blyton's fault because of The Secret Seven and The Famous Five. And you sort of grow up expecting there to be another one in the series and another one in the series and another one in the series. Um, So the, the habit of binge reading was something with which I was quite familiar Um, At a tender age. Recently, I have found that I haven't done it as much. And the reason I haven't done it as much is since I've been writing, my amount of time spent reading has diminished significantly. Not because I can't read another writer while I'm writing because I might end up copying them, but because I just don't have the mental capacity to take on somebody else's imagined world while I'm grappling with my own imagined worlds. Um, I can veg out in front of the television screen for an hour quite happily, but taking in that the the, the multisensory activity that reading is, is beyond me. However, when I'm on holiday, what I do find is that I stack up the books that I'm going to take. And I, I recently have started binge reading Lee Child's Jack Reacher books, and Ellie Griffiths's um, both series of her books. I, I love them both, and um, I I can't understand why people haven't found them, and more than that, I can't understand why I haven't found them before now, but they are wonderful. No, I haven't heard of her, so what, what does she write? Um, Ellie Griffiths is um, – she writes two series, and – she well, sorry, Ellie Griffiths is a British writer. She's um, actually, her real name is Domenica De Rosa, and I've had the great good fortune to meet her. She's a delightful person and writes very much as she exists. Um, She lives on the south coast in Brighton, and she writes two series, very distinct series. One is the Ruth Galloway series. Ruth Galloway is an academic, funnily enough, coincidentally, but she's an archaeologist, Um, So the academia crossover isn't isn't, uh, intentional there. She's a a British archaeologist who ends up in difficult situations, quite often connected with a historical background to do with the archaeological event that she's looking into. I love them because I love history, art, artifacts, civilization, all of those sorts of things. And they all come to play in the Ruth Galloway novels. They're incredibly well written, and they are what I would call traditional sleuth-shaped. They're, they're really very good, <clears throat> again with a strong female lead character, again with her own flaws and foibles. The other series that she writes is just delightful. Um, it's all connected with the 1950s. It's all connected with the seaside and magicians, and it's just wonderful, and the magician Max Mephisto, is a delightful character and I believe Dominica's family is connected with stagecraft and magicianship on the vaudeville stage in, in the background of her family. They're really lovely period pieces. I enjoy them very much.
1: Oh, they both sound great. I'll certainly have to look her up, but you're right, she she doesn't sort of surface very obviously when you when when you're just searching around. So that that's great to hear. Yeah. I know I know in the
2: UK I I believe it was last year. I think it was 2017, it might have been 2016. I believe she won the dagger in the library, the Crime Writers Association dagger in the library. I know her books are very popular at British libraries and quite rightly so. Uh Oh,
1: that's great. We are coming to the end of our chat together. So just circling around, you made a reference to writing what you like and perhaps changing direction a little bit. So I'm just wondering... What What is that entailing for you? What is next for Kathy, the writer?
2: Well, it's interesting you use the phrase circling around because I've just circled around. I went back to Murder Month by Month, that first collection of short stories I wrote all those years ago, um, not in 2007, and I thought, I wonder if writing about a million and a half words since then will allow me to do a better job with the stories that I crafted. And I've just self-published murder keeps no calendar which is some of the stories from that original collection plus one brand new story and a couple a few other stories that i've had published elsewhere i rewrote them i re-edited them i dumped a few because they've become anachronistic with the passage of time and i'll give those some attention in the future but i thought it would i would it's not very often in life you get a do-over and I realized that with the world of publishing the way it is these days, I had a chance for a do-over. So I've taken it. And self-publishing Murder Keeps No Calendar was step number one. I'm also going to re-edit and rewrite the murder season-by-season season novellas. And they're going to come out as Murder Knows No Season later this year. Um, But what I'm working on right now is a piece of what I believe people would call domestic suspense in that it focuses on three generations of a family, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter, all living in the same slightly woe-begone seafront house in South Wales, and all of whom are connected with the pretty gruesome death of a young boy in their location. Now, the identity of the corpse is not known initially, and they don't know initially that they are connected with the death. Or maybe they do. We'll have to see.
1: That's interesting that you say that, because I was going to ask you how much of the story you know yourself when you set out, and, and how much of it falls into place as you go along. It sounds like you do, Your your characters do talk to you and tell you things as you go along that make it more more clear what's happening in the background.
2: Yeah, they tend to do that at the outline stage, to be honest with you, Jenny. I, I'm I'm a big outliner, and I like to have my chapters all laid out. By the time I sit down to do the tippity-tap-tap actual writing, I'm bossing them around like nobody's business, and they can shout in my ear all they like. They will do what I'm going to tell them to do, and they'll do it properly, and when I tell them to do it, because otherwise the outline goes out the window. But that for me, the most creative phase is the outlining phase, where I do allow the characters to grow and develop and and for something to bump into me that comes from them and to accommodate that at that stage. I've I've given in to allowing them to stick their oar in much later in the process once, and I very much regretted it and I ended up having to go back and rework a whole section of the book to put everything back where it belonged. Otherwise, the whole of the outline went out of shape.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just just going back to that domestic suspense, so that'll be a
2: standalone novel, will it? Or It, it will. Um, I I do feature the character I mentioned earlier, Detective Inspector Evan Glover, um, within it, and his sidekick, um, uh, Elizabeth Stanley. They do feature in it. It is not a police procedural, however, um, and they get caught up in the case as well as investigating it. So they're on the peripheries of it. I wouldn't say that it's going to be a novel in a series. For me, the story of these characters will be completed by the end of this novel, although in some cases their lives will go on. Sure, sure. So tell me, at this stage
1: in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything?
2: What I would change is actually not much to do with the writing, but to do with the writer's life. I would have gone to crime writers' conventions before I was published. I would have started building up networks with other crime writers with crime writing associations before I was published. And I would have started reading blogs, reviewers, and crime writing review magazines before I was published. I was kind of dipping my toe in the water because it was of interest to me, but I hadn't applied myself in a professional manner prior to publication. What I learned too late is I knew you only ever had a debut novel once. What I didn't understand was the publication of that debut novel should take place about a year after you've started to try to make sure that people know you exist in the marketplace. Because hearing about a new book from a complete unknown doesn't achieve what hearing about a book from someone you've come to know as a person means. Two different things. I wish I could go back and do that over again.
1: That's very interesting. You are now very active in writers' organisations, aren't you? I mean, I think, are you currently chair of the Crime Writers of Canada group? So you have belatedly come to obviously see real benefits and and obviously
2: giving back to those organisations as well with your time and energy. Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, I did join Crime Writers of Canada I think in the January or February before my first book came out in the March. Once I had a publication date, I was eligible as a published author. Um, I also joined the Crime Writers Association in the UK, Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime. Now, for a person who doesn't see themselves as a joiner, that's quite a lot of joining going on. (laughs) And I do find that um, working completely in isolation or with the odd bit of outreach to research sources as an author, suits me down to the ground. But it is very nice to connect with other people who are facing the same daily challenges that you are, even if they're slightly different specific challenges. You can learn so much from people who've trodden the path before you. And as you say, I, I, I learned a lot to begin with. I, I became a regional representative for Crime Writers of Canada, then the vice chair, and I am now the chair. I will step down from that post in May of this year, having done it for two years. But I have learned an incredible amount during that period from fellow authors. And what I've seen as being an important role is to set up paths towards learning for beginning authors. It's very difficult when you're a beginning author to get insights from people who are not mentors but who have got life lessons and professional lessons that you pass on to you. I, I'm not um, not talking about the writing craft here. What I'm talking about is the writing life and the promotional marketing aspects of it, probably those parts of it that were so close to me before I even came to writing. And um, I have got a lot out of it. And the conventions, the, the left-coast crimes and the voucher cons and the crime fests and the malice domestics, Just the joy of mixing with other people where you can sit down and say, editors, roll your eyes, and everybody knows what you're talking about. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So it's been marvellous having a chance
1: to talk, and we are coming to the end of our time. So where can readers find
2: you online? Well, I have a rinky-dinky website, um, kathyace.com, C-A-T-H-Y-A-C-E.com, um, as, as we are doing this, I'm in the process of working up a brand new website. This one stood me in very good stead for five years, but I think it's time to refresh it. So depending on when people are listening to this and going to the website, they might find the one that's been around for a little while, or they might find the brand spanking new one. Both will feature a photograph of me looking much better than I have any right to, thanks to hair and makeup. Um, and um, the website is there. I blog every other week at seven criminal minds. And I blog once a month at a lovely place called killercharacters.com, which is where we, um, we speak as our characters, which is an interesting take on blogging, I think. Whereas the seven criminal minds is much more like a panel where five authors answer the same question each week on a rotating basis. Um, I don't have a personal blog and I don't think I'll move that way. I think I'd rather keep my other writing time for novels. Probably the website's the best place to find out what's going on and what events I might be at coming up.
1: Sure, we will certainly make sure the links to all of those blogs and the things you've mentioned are included in the show notes. Do you? Do you? Are you active on social media, Facebook and Twitter, or one, any of those?
2: Absolutely, Facebook. I enjoy Facebook. I like the visual aspect of it. And I am Kathy Ace-Author on Facebook. Um, and at Twitter I'm at Ace Kathy, at Capital A-C-E Kathy. Oddly, because Kathy Ace had already gone, and I don't know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. We'll put all of those
1: there prominently so that people can find it easy to get in touch, Kathy. Look, thank you so much. And I hope that dear doggy of yours isn't going to suffer too much longer.
2: Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate it. And she's she's quiet and resting now. And, and I
1: really thank you for that. Don't you worry. Have a good day and we'll keep in touch. Thank you.
2: I hope it was okay. Thank you very much. It was lovely, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director, and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe. A-B-E at pointandshoot.co.nz As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.